Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. There are 66 books in the Bible, but to understand sin and redemption through Jesus, you must start from the first book, where God breathed life and set the stage for the unfolding story of His living word. Join us as we go through the book of Genesis in this sermon series titled, Grace Upon Grace. Amen, 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 and grab a seat, grab a seat. What, a, what an amazing time in worship. Thank you, team, for leading us so well. Give the Lord a hand. Uh, as, you know, special, special, special. Uh, and happy New Year. Uh, we, we did have a service on New Year's Day, and, uh, and, and, uh, and that was amazing. Praise God, uh, Alan led so well. But we are starting a new series in the book of Genesis. And so uh, just to kind of little heads up, uh, this will carry us through into the summer. We're going to take a little break over the summer and then jump back into Genesis starting in the fall, and we should be done by when Jesus returns. And so that's when we're going to, not just plan, we'll be done um, uh, kind of getting close to Christmas at that point in time. But, uh, but we're, we plan on going through the whole book of Genesis. And we're going to, today, we're going to be looking at the first chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter one. So if you have a Bible, it is going to be the easiest place to find in your Bible, right there at the front, Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one. Let me read a little bit for us, pray for us, and then we will jump in. It says this. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be lights, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it be separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Jump over to verse 26. And by then, the car will stop honking. (laughs) Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the uh, earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living creatures, uh, living things that move on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You, have, you shall have food, uh, have them for food. And so every beast of the field and to every bird uh, on the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that he had um, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we open the book of Genesis, you would open our hearts and minds 
that we might see you for who you are, the God of creation. And Lord, as we look at this text, this, this ancient text, that we would see how it, the implications are very present and timely for us today. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see you for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been lost? Uh, the first time I really remember being lost was when I was five years old. My family had gone on, on a trip, vacation, to, I believe, Port Aransas. So we were staying in one of the hotel condos there near the beach. And my family had all decided to go back up to the condo, but I had disobeyed and I decided to stay uh, in the beach near the water. And so I'm there playing and it's starting to get dark at that time. And as I'm there playing, having a good time, I look back and suddenly realize that I am all alone in the darkness. And I am terrified at this moment. And so I start working my way back to uh, what I see are the condos. And if, if you've been in this type of situation with these types of condos, they all look the same. And so I'm kind of meandering my way through trying to figure out where they are. And suddenly I just see a, a couple kids sitting on their porch. And I go over to them and I said, um, have you seen, and this is going to date me terribly, have you seen a brown station wagon, right? And so... In the 80s, um, it's like looking at, I don't know, a Ford truck today. Like everyone had a brown station wagon. It, it, was, it, was, it was everyone had one or an SUV. Like it's that type of thing. And, and their kids are like, I don't know. Like if you look in the parking lot, there's a billion brown station wagons. And, and, and I'm like, I don't know. And so they look over to their parents. And I hadn't cried at this point yet, but they look to their parents. They go, there's a kid out there. I think he's lost. And at that moment, I lost it. I was like, I am alone here in the midst of this darkness. Is there, is there any way? home. And, and, and the reason I start there is because I was found. I made it. I'm here today. Um, the reason I think that's so uh, poignant is because I, I think it, for many of us, uh, we want to be found. We want to know that we are part of something, that there is a purpose for our life, that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, and that there's someone out there who wants us to hold us, to know that we belong somewhere. And I think that's so important because as we look at Genesis, this is the book of origins. This is the book of origins for who you are and who you belong to. You're not lost in the world. There's a purpose behind your life. There's a creator of the universe. It wasn't an accident that you are here. We are not here because of some cosmic accident. We are here because of the purposes of God. And as we look at the, the book of Genesis... He's going to give us crystal clarity into what God is like, and therefore, because God is this way, his purpose for creating you. Um, the book of Genesis um, is, is written, by all accounts, by um, Moses in Acts chapter 7. Um, it describes Moses being educated in Egypt, but Jesus himself will also describe Moses' authorship of the book of Matthew. From Hebrews, uh, the, the title of, of the book is it's really from the first word. It's the, the beginnings of things. It's the start of points. And so what we see is there's, there's a starting point for all of life. And if indeed Moses is the author of the book, you can picture uh, the people of Israel as they're being led, led out of captivity in Egypt. I mean, Moses himself had a question about who this God was. And, and when God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, he says, who, who should I say sent me? 
And at that moment, God says, I am sent you, the God who exists, the God who is. And at that moment, you see that Moses needed to come face to face with the God who created everything that was going to lead his people out. And as Moses begins writing the first five books of the Bible, you can almost picture that moment of him describing who God is to a people that maybe had forgotten who he was over their years in captivity. And I think that's so pertinent because I think for many of us, we may have forgotten who God is and become lost in a world and been looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for significance in all sorts of areas of life. And, and, and everyone has an answer to that as to where you think meaning and destiny and purpose are found. But in the book of Genesis, we get crystal clarity into who God says you are and what your purpose and destiny in the world is. And so this morning, um, in looking at Genesis chapter one, I really wanna answer three questions that I think the text answers. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about creation? And what do we learn about man? And those are the three questions I want to answer. Now in saying that, there are many questions that I will not answer today, and I'm sorry. I've got a short amount of time, you've got a short attention span, and we're, we just can't cover everything. But I, but I will say this, uh, we are going to focus primarily on, on who and why in creation, not necessarily the how and the when. Many of us want to answer the question of how and when did God create? And I would point you to a couple other resources to look at those, that, that information in more detail. There's, there's a book um, that came out by Zondervan, and I'm just going to um, point you in this direction. Christians have a uh, different viewpoints on, on when and how creation took place. This book is entitled Four Views of Creation and Evolution, and, um, Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. And they list kind of four categories within um, conservative Christian viewpoints that Christians could have in regards to creation. Uh, there's um, evolutionary creationists, there's old earth creationists, there's young earth creationists, and there's also intelligent design. And in that book, they walk through all the arguments for those different viewpoints. And I would just say, within the family, there's, there's debate on, on which, which way God used to, to do that. And so I would just say, those are, those are conversations within the family that I would encourage you to go study more deeply about. But where we can be unified is what Genesis is really telling us about God, about creation, and about you. And it's in those areas that I want to spend our time this morning. So the first, to begin, what do we learn about God? It says in Genesis chapter 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The, the things that we learn about God, I'm going to give you three things we learn about God from this picture, and then a quick summary. The three things we learn is that God is independent, He is the creator, and he's invested in his creation. And if you were to summarize it even more simply, we see God, his supremacy, and his intimacy. The first thing that we see in this section is this, that God is independent. Um, it's not an accident in this section that it begins um, the creation story and really the beginning of the Bible by talking about God. Because fundamentally, the Bible is not a book about you. It is a book describing God's interaction with humanity. 
It's a book primarily about God. In Genesis chapter 1, although you do fit into the story, you're not the center of the story. The center of the story is God. And all throughout this text, you see that, that God creates and God blesses his creation. He says um, that he created this and it was good all the way throughout it. So the center of the story point is on God. And it says in the beginning, that, that starting point of all of it is that, that God created. Um, the theological term uh, is called ex nihilo. Uh, it means out of nothing. That's talked about in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says that by faith we believe that God created everything from nothing. But this is a very different view of creation than other ancient Babylonian myths. See, people that study this history, um, the history of the writing of, of the book of Genesis, as well as the history of ancient Near East um, mythologies, they try to like, see if there's commonality between the two. Babylon was the, uh, and Babylonian myths was like the common viewpoint that they can kind of try to compare them to. But what's fascinating is that you see that the book of Genesis looks nothing like the myths of ancient Babylon. In ancient Babylon, they believed that creation was um, basically uh, two gods, Marduk and Anu, got in a fight. One was slain, and then from her kind of body that was killed, he, God created the rest of it, or Marduk created the rest of humanity. And that's kind of what you'll see in ancient literature. But this reads nothing like that. This says that God, independent from creation, begins spinning things into motion. See, God is not a part of creation. God sets creation into motion. He is the one. He is independent from it, but he then creates within it. That's why I reference Hebrews 11 verse 3. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So God created everything out of nothing. What's fascinating is, you, is as scientists have studied the creation of the universe, there's a lot of debate and, and questions about how and when this happened. Um, the, in one, one of those amazing discoveries was from the Hubble Telescope. In his book, um, God and the Astronomers, Robert Jastrow, who was um, a, a believer but a, but a scientist, he says this, Hubble made one of the most important discoveries in the history of science. He found that the first unmistakable evidence that the universe appears to be expanding in the aftermath of a great explosion that occurred billions of years ago. This discovery led to the picture of a sudden beginning of the universe, for, we, for if we retrace the outward movement of the galaxies in time, we come to a time when they were packed together in a dense, hot mass. Further back than this, the astronomer cannot go. In the scientist version of Genesis, that moment marked the beginning of a chain of cause and effect that led to the appearance of mankind on Earth. So even as scientists are studying the creation of, of the galaxies, and the Hubble Space Telescope looked deep into the, the galaxies in the universe, they said there's something very interesting. It seems that there was a starting point and an expansion. It seems that there was, there was some impetus that created everything else. And what they're seeing as they're studying the galaxies at this point is that the speed of, of, of expansion is actually increasing, not decreasing. 
There was a period of time when scientists uh, wanted to figure out, well, is there a process of the gravitational force will eventually pull all that matter back together? And so basically you have a series of big bangs within this. And what, what the scientists are telling us is, actually, that's not, that's not what we're seeing. Now, there's other ways they're trying to explain it and get around it. But at the end of the day, they're saying this, there was a clear start that began the process of all of this. The Bible would say this, it was the word of God that set this into motion. It was his speech that set this forward. So we see that God is independent. He's the creator. But thirdly, we see that God's invested. See, it it says in this, in verse two, if you read with me again, it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It describes God as, as hovering. Now that, that word can be translated in a couple different areas, describing actually a bird caring for, her, um, caring for her, her young. And so it's almost like Genesis, the author of Genesis is saying, God, as he's beginning to create, doesn't just spin it into motion and kind of forget about it. It's not like uh, you and that drunk drawer, closet, uh, drunk drawer in your kitchen where you're just like, what is that pin going to do? It's going to go there. What about the hammer? We're going to put it there. Like it's not a drunk drawer that God just threw it out there. It says that God was intimate and invested in the creation. He was, he was hovering over it. He was watching over it closely. You also get another little picture in here, uh, a, a hint that God is, um, has a diversity within him that there's the spirit of God at work in creation. In fact, we learn later on that actually all three persons of the Trinity were at work when creation was happening. Happening, God the Father, God the Spirit, we see here, and God the Son. All of them were at work in creation. And it says that they were working together, and, and this, this distinguishes us as Christians from a deist, He says, maybe there's a God exists, but he just kind of spun it into motion and he's not invested in it. No, no, no. The Bible says, no, he's deeply invested in it. It also distinguishes us from pantheists who kind of believe that everything is God, that uh, God's in the microphone, he's in the trees, he's in the spirit. Like, no, no, no. He is distinct from the creation that he made. It also distinguishes us from from atheists that that believe that everything came from nothing. We're saying, no, no, uh, God independent of creation set the spark, and made everything that we see. Now, what's, what's fascinating is people look at creation, they study this, they, as they study space and, and all the creation, what they would say, some people would say, some skeptics would say, well, it seems like a lot of wasted space. I mean, think about the universe. It's pretty big. And let me just kind of read um, some of the language that they put around it, and it's helpful. It says, scientists estimate that the observable universe, the part that we can see, is around 93 billion light years across. That's pretty big. If they stuck you in a ship and you wanted to get from one side to the other, it would take you 93 billion years to get there. That's big. You don't like driving to Galveston or like East Texas, like 93 billion years, like with your kids going like, when are we going to be there? Never. We're never going to be there. It's really, really big. The whole universe is at least 250 times as large as the observable universe. Our own planet is 150, um, 
150 million kilometers away from the sun. Earth's nearest star, Alpha Centauri, um, are four light years away. That's around 40 trillion kilometers. Our gal- These are big numbers, I get it. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, contains anywhere from 100 to 400 billion stars. The observable universe, um, around 300 sextillion stars. These numbers are just pretend. Um, And then they write this, over the last few decades, a new way of arguing for atheism has emerged. Philosophers of religion um, have asked us to consider the kind of universe we would expect the Christian God to create and compare it with the universe we actually live in. They argue there's a mismatch. How big the universe is, and he argues that there's reason to disbelieve that the God of classical Christianity is real because it's too big. Which, at one level, you could say, well, maybe maybe that's a point. I mean, if, if the purpose of creation is about creating a space for you and I to hang out, if that's the purpose of creation, then maybe it is too big. Maybe God built the house too big and we need to downsize to be more manageable at this point in our life. And, and, and that's kind of a viewpoint that some people would lay out there. But the heavens are not telling the glory of man. The, the vastness of creation isn't meant for you and I to feel big. Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. If the Bible was human oriented, then yes, the universe seems a little bit too big. But if if the Bible and creation is about spotlighting the glory of God, it's probably not quite big enough. See, the heavens are telling us something about our creator, that he is supreme. He is powerful. He creates everything out of nothing. He has supremacy, but he also has intimacy. See, he he is intimately involved in what he is creating. And that's what he goes on to say in verse two. We learn about his creation. Verse two, it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. As God spoke everything to existence, he begins then moving in and starts forming and making the things that he had created, that he put into existence. And if you were to look at the, the creation narrative over these six days, as, as, as it's described, um, I, I put a chart together to understand what's happening within this. Um, there's two words that are used in Genesis chapter 2. It says that the earth was without form and void. There's two words in Hebrew. You're going to seem really smart today at lunch. Here's your two words. Tohu and bohu. Those are so good. They're supposed to rhyme, uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a reason for that in, in Hebrew language. It's poetic. They said that there, there, was, there was no form, and there was no fullness. Tohu means that it was formless. It was like a wasteland. Um, bohu basically means there was, there, was, there was nothing to fill it. There was nothing inside of it. And so in the creation narrative, what you have in these two descriptions are in days one through three, you have God forming life to exist, 
And in days four through six, you have him filling what he formed. You have this intentional effort to prepare existence for life to thrive. This intentional energy to prepare the land, prepare the world for life to exist. And what you see in this is that creation was intentional. There's a, there's a rhythm, there's a symmetry, there's a purpose within this. He, he's going to start by creating light. I'm sorry, go back real quick. Go back. He's going to start by creating light. And then he's going to form the sea and the skies. And then he's going to move to make the earth inhabitable. And then you see this, this process of, of, of putting the luminary bodies into motion and then moving creatures into the, the, the different places in which they can thrive. But you see this intentional creation of, of first forming and then filling what he has formed. This is really, really important. He begins by creating light. And I was listening to um, a professor at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary talk about this creation narrative and, and the description of creation here. And he says, why do you think God began with light? And it was funny, uh, it was a video lecture, so you could see all these seminary students going like, I got an answer. And so they kind of throw stuff, it's the Shekinah glory of God, it's this, it's this. He's, he's like, yeah, it's actually more simple than that. He says, the God that creates is a God who steps down to serve his creation. God was fine. He doesn't have eyes. He can see just fine. The light wasn't for him. The light was for us. And so what you see God doing in his forming of the earth is he's creating a space for the creatures he creates to thrive and survive, to flourish. And so when you're thinking about creation, as you see these different processes of it, he had in mind the end game. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just happenstance. It's that God was intentionally putting these things into motion so that his creatures would thrive. And, and he, he made this connection. I thought this is really fascinating. And so I'm giving Dr. Allman all credit. It's very fascinating. He says when Jesus comes to earth and he says um, that the purpose of humanity is to not to be served but to serve. He says that's what true greatness lies, not in, in being served, but serving. He says he's not coming up with new information. He's reflecting what was true about God from the beginning of creation, from the beginning of who God, what God is like. He is, he is one that serves in creating us. And when Jesus says, hey, th this picture of, of leadership means that we are serving those beneath us, all he's doing is reflecting what God has been doing in creation. So he makes light so the, um, th so his life, the life can, can see and, and, and operate. He says in verse day two, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let's separate waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse. And this is basically just a description of creating um, an, an atmosphere, that the heavens and the earth and I'm kind of separating, making distinctions on this. In day three, he says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let dry land appear. And so he begins creating dry land on earth and then populating that earth with, some, with some, some plant life. And what's interesting is that each point in the day, you see that God is forming before he fills the creation. I think I'm just going to take a little step aside and say, you can learn a lot about how to lead your life based on this pattern in Genesis. Here's what I mean. It's 2023, it's a new year. 
some of you will have new opportunities or new obligations, another way to describe it, an opportunity, come up this year. You have new opportunities and or obligations. What some of us tend to do is we just fill without forming. We just say, let's just add that to the to-do list. And we then create things that are unmanageable in our lives. We begin filling before we begin forming. And here's what you see in, in creation. Is that God begins creating light on day one. Why did he stop there? Was he tired? Did he get worn out? Like, oh, that was a big light. I don't know. I'm like, it was, a, was he tired? No. He's teaching some, something to us in this process. He's saying, creation, you're going to be created with limits. You're created with limits intentionally. And I'm modeling what it looks like to, to first form and then to fill and to live within the limits I'm creating you to live within. It's very, very intentional. It's a, it's a very important teaching tool that God is using in this process. To, to look at your life and say, God created and then he rested and created and then he rested and created. And he did this in an in intentional process. Do you live your life that way? Do you construct your life that way? And day four, it says he began filling the lights in the expanse of the heavens, that he set the sun and moon and stars in place. Now, that's confusing for some of us. They could be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There was light created in day one, but we don't have a sun, moon, and stars until day four? Drama. The Bible's lying. Right, calm down. <laughs> calm down. Has no one thought of that before? One or two people. <clears throat> Let me quote one commentator. He says, Keel, this commentator, re represents um, a common evangelical viewpoint when he suggests that though the heavens and earth were created in the beginning, it was not until the fourth day that they were completed. The world was not perfected at its commencement in the manner that we see. So we see that God is then, although light existed, he begins forming the luminary bodies into place in his timing so that life can thrive and survive. And, and there's also a theological statement here. The fact that God, that God creates everything, but then talks about the sun, the moon later on, is a theological statement as well. Because historically, and you see this in Greek culture, Roman culture, they worshiped the sun. They worshiped Jupiter. They worshiped these created luminaries. And so there's a theological statement that God is saying. He's like, no, 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 those are well below me. They're just balls of matter that I put into space. They're nothing you should worship. They're nothing above you. They're something that are created by a God. And at this point, I mean, can you imagine when this was written to make that statement? These are just things. They're nothing for you to worship. That was a dramatically different viewpoint in the ancient world. You see what's going on as God's creating. He's setting an entirely different framework for who he is and what we should worship and where life is found. And day five, he begins forming new parts of, of matter. And in, in all of this, there's, a, there's an argument out there, which I think is really helpful. It's called the fine-tuning argument. As scientists study creation, the, the forming and the feeling, what they discover is that it was created so intentionally for life to thrive and exist in this planet. Let me read you um, from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. It's really helpful. 
He says, for organic life to exist, the fundamental regularities and constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strong and weak forces, nuclear forces that hold matter together, must have precise values and fall within an extremely narrow range. Otherwise, life would not exist. Um, there's a, a, a scientist, he, be, he founded, he was the president of the Human Genome Project, the process to map the DNA structure within, within life. His name is Francis Collins. He re, actually, he's a believer, and he wrote a book called The Language of God. A scientist presents evidence for belief. He writes this, the human genome consists of all the DNA of our species, the hereditary code of life. This newly revealed text was three billion letters long and written in a strange cryptic four-letter code. Such is the amazing complexity of the information carried within each cell of the human body that a live reading of the code at a rate of one letter per second would take 31 years even if reading continued day and night, printing these letters on a regular font size of a normal bound paper and binding them all together would result in a tower the height of the Washington Monument. That's a lot of information. You're complicated. (laughs) He goes on to write this. What's going on here? Why would a president and a scientist charged with announcing a milestone in biology and medicine feel compelled to invoke a connection with God. Why did you write this book? Aren't the scientific and spiritual worldviews antithetical, or shouldn't they at least avoid appearing in the East Room together? What were the reasons for invoking God to these two speeches? Was this poetry, hypocrisy, a cynical attempt to curry favor from believers or to disarm those who might criticize this study of the human genome as reducing humankind to machinery? No, not for me. Quite the contrary. For me, the experience of sequencing the hum of a genome and uncovering the most remarkable of all texts was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion for worship. The reason I spend time there is because so many of us, when we look at creation, there becomes this fear of I either have faith or I believe in science. And what I'm telling you is we have a God of creation. He put it together in all of its complexity, in all of its beauty. And in each time he creates, he says, it's good. It's good. You see that? That was good. You ever spend time looking at creation just to honor the God of creation? I'm going to throw some photos because I can't stick us into a plane and take us somewhere because I don't have any money to do that. But let me take you, but I can't afford some photos. Here's a couple of things just to, to look at. If you were to look at the Hubble Space Telescope and you were to look deep into the galaxies. This is, I believe, 200, what is it, 214 million light years away. It would take us a long time to get there. You would see beauty in that creation. I sometimes just go on the NASA website and just, and just start clicking on stars and photos of what they're seeing in space. It is beautiful. Or you can take a trip in the United States and Canada 
to Niagara Falls and see the beauty of a waterfall. You see, when God was creating everything, he said, look, enjoy, it is good. It is good. It is good. In his last kind of moment of creation, you see in in many ways um, almost a crescendo in it when he comes to man. And it's not because you're the most important entity in the universe. God is. But you are significant. You have dignity and purpose and value higher than every other created thing. In verse 26 he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over over the earth and over every creeping thing. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is beautiful. The scene slows down as you get to verse 26. See, every other part of creation is like, hey, let the earth produce vegetation. Let the seas produce fish. Let the skies have, have birds. Like in every other part of creation, it's, 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 it's the, they're going in flocks and herds. And, and at this moment when he looks to man, he says, slows everything down. He says, I'm going to create this man. And there's going to be something unique about this human. He's going to be created in the image of God. The image of God means that you, are, you can significantly reflect God like nothing else. There's dignity in every human person. And let me tell you, every human person has dignity and value and worth regardless of their response to the creator. Tim Keller, uh, in one of his lectures, says this. He says, we don't get human dignity from purely evolutionary thought. They must borrow from Christianity. If we are all from the same ancestors, as Genesis tells us, then no person is superior or inferior. God's creation means I treat every person with dignity regardless of capacity. So every person we see, every person that cuts us off in traffic, every parent on the baseball team, Every person that tries to sell us something, every person that that works for us, every boss that we have, everyone in authority or under authority, every single person has dignity and value and worth that was instilled in them because of a loving God who created them. John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Every person has dignity and value and worth, but you also see a second piece. You see diversity in there. It says male and female, he created them, and both men and women have dignity and value and together reflect the image of God. You have unity in diversity. So we value our women, amen? And we value our men, amen? Absolutely. Everyone has dignity and value and worth and together reflect the image of God of creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We'll talk more about intimacy and relationships later on. But it was his idea for the two to become one and to fill the earth with his image by having babies. What a beautiful thing. 
And then it says at the end, he was given responsibility. He's given responsibility. Over all the land, over all the animals, over everything, you have authority and responsibility to steward this, to steward creation, to to lovingly serve and help creation like I lovingly served and created creation for you, that I formed it and filled it. And he's gonna give Adam responsibility later on over the garden, but there's there's a responsibility that humanity has over creation. And it's beautiful and it's serious, and it's, it's a unique response, <clears throat> responsibility that God has given humanity to steward creation well. So we learn about God that he is supreme and intimate. We learn about creation that is immense and creative. We learn about man that he has dignity and destiny to steward this creation under the authority of his heavenly creator God. And so what do we do in response? What do I do with all of this information? Um, in, in some sermons, like there's a clear application, like you go do X. And this, I want us to just sit and look at the glory of God to know who he is, to know what he created, and to know how you fit within his story. The psalmist writes in Psalm 8, when I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You set him a little lower than the heavenly beings but you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name over all the earth. As the psalmist looks at creation, he doesn't say, I got it pretty good here. He says, I am humbled to know the creator God that made all of this and wants a relationship with me. And that's the truth. Jesus came to expose us more clearly with who God is in a personal relationship. John 1 says in mirroring Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He came into human history so that you could know your heavenly Father who put all of this into motion. Do you know Him? Are you worshiping Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? My encouragement to you this morning is to take a moment and reflect on your relationship with your heavenly Father. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you set all of this into motion. Lord, that you are brilliant. You are personal. 
And when we look at the vastness and beauty of creation, we stand in awe of you. And so Lord, I pray today that if anyone here this morning does not know you and your work, your work in creation, but your work on the cross through the Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day that we know you and walk with you. And Lord, if we're feeling distant from you, Lord, I pray that today we might know that Jesus, you love us, you want a relationship with us, that you created a world that we would flourish and be in relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would make that clear today. Lord, I lift up each person here that you would draw us closer to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. As we close, our prayer team is gonna come forward and let me encourage you to take a moment and really seek the Lord. Um, I, I was struck even um, these, these past few weeks, um, and many of you are all familiar with this moment um, where there was a, a football player injured um, and a ESPN host, Dan Orlowski, bowed his head and prayed. Um, and I don't know Dan's full story, I don't know all the things about him, but there was something powerful when we really took a moment and sought the Lord together for the sake of another, and there was something beautiful about that. Um, our prayer team is gonna come forward, and the reason we seek God in prayer is because we believe in a God who is and wants to be near to us. And some of you are struggling with some things, whether it's in your marriage, or within your finances, or within your health, or with a relationship. And so you, you want someone to pray alongside you, but you've never taken that step to really open up to someone else. So do that today as our worship team closes. Come forward. We want to pray alongside you, seeking the Lord on your behalf alongside you. So whatever it is that might be moving in your heart, come forward as our worship team closes and respond um, to the Lord as he would have you. Would you stand us together as we close? Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.